Welcome to another one of My Cockpit's informational podcasts. Because of all of you, My Cockpit is the largest home cockpit builders community in the world. You can access My Cockpit at www.mycockpit.org. This podcast is about tips and discussions on how to plan and build your cockpit. Many new builders ask questions such as, where to start? How much will it cost? How much time will it take? And many, many more questions. This session and future sessions are with the infamous cockpit builder, Ian, known at mycockpit.org as Ian at 737NG. Ian is interviewed by our very own Bob. Lots of excellent cockpit building information coming your way. Hello all, welcome to this third edition of MyCockpit.org's podcast on tips and tricks with Ian. Ian, of course, is a very well-known home cockpit builder and has created his very own Boeing 737 home cockpit at UK, which of course is unique for its innovation and approach and very well-known across the home cockpit building community. You can, of course, catch more on Ian and his home cockpit project from his website www.737ng.co.uk. Ian, welcome again to our show. And uh, good morning to you. Morning, Ian. So, uh, how has the last month uh, been, uh, Ian, for you? Well, very, very busy. I've had um, uh, quite a few things in the pipeline. Um, I've been working a little bit with Leo uh, with some ideas, and um, I've had quite a few visitors in. Um, This week, I've had uh, two actual 737 pilots. It's great. I really enjoy the real world guys coming over because they teach me so much, you know. I mean, obviously, um, without having access to a real 737, um, it's very difficult to get things 100%. But when these guys come in, um, you know, I'm watching them, I'm listening, I've got the notepad, and uh, we have a great time. So, uh, basically, the last month's been pretty hectic for me. Um, because we have a new project on the go on Airbus with a friend, and that's going well as, uh, as well. So, you know, plenty going on. Fantastic, uh, Ian. Well, this, of course, is the third edition of the Trips and Tricks podcast, which, of course, is targeted to the new home cockpit builders to equip them with the basic knowledge that's required for any home cockpit builder. You'll all recollect in the first edition, we discussed on the basics of cockpit planning, And in the second edition, we discussed on inputs. You can, of course, access these podcasts from our website, www.mycockpit.org, or on Yen's website, www.737ng.co.uk. Well, okay, let's get into the third episode. So, Yen, what are we going to talk about this edition? Okay, well, what we've got lined up for this time is um, we're going to be looking at some very simple electronics. Um, I mean, basically using very, very simple components in simple circuits to either switch something on or off or to start or stop to something. Uh, you know, basically we all start somewhere. So uh, I thought we'd start at the bottom this time and look at some very, very simple circuits. Uh, using DC current, um, all references uh, in this discussion will be um, about using low voltage DC. Um, direct current, of course, to potentials, the positive, and a negative or ground, um, unlike AC, which is alternating current, uh, where the two poles cycle between uh, both potentials. Uh, in DC, the potentials remain constant as the positive and negative. 
uh, just something for um, new people to bear in mind, with uh, direct current, uh, the current will flow from the positive potential to the ground. Just bear in mind that some components, uh, like LEDs or um, uh, diodes, in fact, are pole sensitive. Uh, and that means they have to be connected the right way round, or they won't work. But we'll be looking at this a little bit later on as we go further in. Ian, my first question is where do we get this power from? <laughs> love it, love it. Okay, for me, um, the best source of the DC voltage um, will be an ATX computer power supply. I'm sure that most people will know this, but um, they're regulated, they're stable, and of course they have built-in overload and short circuit protection. So if you don't get it right, um, the power supply will protect itself by turning off. Um, and the best bit for me is they're cheap. Uh, they're readily available. You can buy them anywhere. Uh, at computer stores, you can buy them online. Um, I mean, I buy them off eBay, you know, where they're virtually, um, you know, so cheap. Uh, you can afford to, you know, put one on the shelf as a spare. Or, or you might even have an old computer hanging around. But the ATX power supply, for me, it's uh, one of my best friends. Um, using an ATX, of course, like the power supply is going to give you a 3.3 volt, a 5 volt, and a 12 volt supply. Um, generally, uh, if you look at um, an ATX power supply, uh, you'll see a multi-pin plug. Depending how, on how old it is, it'll either be a 20 or a 24 pin. Uh, there's a multitude of wires connected to the plug, but if you just follow, um, sort of orange is going to give you 3.3 volts, red is going to give you 5 volts, yellow is going to give you 12 volts, um, all the blacks are ground, uh, and the green is the switch for turning it on and off. Uh, the color coding is the same on um, uh, all the other uh, Molex plugs as well. So just remember, orange 3.3, red is 5, yellow is 12, black's the ground, and the green is the switch. Oh, great, Ian. You know I'm an accountant. I understand you can use a power source, and ATX computer power supply is the best one at the moment, but how are we going to use it? Well, okay. Uh, well, the first thing is, of course, we're going to want to control it. Um, now, uh, referring back to the coloured wires, um, one of the, the wires I mentioned was a green. Now, the green is the switch for the power supply. And if you connect the green wire to any ground, uh, the ATX power supply will turn on. Uh, and, of course, if you break the contact, the ATX will turn off. So what you can do is you can wire a green and a black wire to a switch uh, for use on your overhead, your MIP, whatever, which will give you control of the ATX power supply. Uh, alternatively, I mean, the power supply may have um, its own switch, so uh, you may prefer to use that. In that case, just join the green and black wire, and you have control of, of your power source. It's on and off. Um, you know, so basically, um, just remember green and black, and that'll allow you to control it. Um, uh, just at this point, um, I just want to just um, uh, give you a really uh, a pointer to what I call continuity. Now, continuity, uh, what it means is that you have a continuous circuit for the flow of your current 
between any two points. Uh, that can be from the power supply to your LED or motor through several components like a switch, a diode, a resistor, or simply across the components. So further on, when I mentioned continuity, um, that was just to let you know what I mean. Okay, I understand now continuity. Yeah, just, just to help our viewers, um, most of the stuff that you're talking about and, on, and what you're going to talk about, we are, of course, going to have it's a PDF file that's available for download on the website. And I think we should encourage our members to have that before them as they hear it because there's going to be various points during the interview that you're going to point them out to that. So that will be a ready reference. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. I sweated blood on that. So please download it and read it. Because um, what I've done is, I mean, obviously, we're, we're having a discussion here. But what I've actually done in the document is I've included some uh, examples of uh, simple circuits that we're talking about today. So download the document, and uh, in it you'll find um, examples of what we're discussing, and also some links to some very helpful sites. The file should be available on the mycockpit.org website, along with uh, the tips and tricks uh, podcast download button. Okay, well, yeah, now I understand we have a power source, but what are we going to do with it now? Well, the first thing we want to do is we want to supply components, okay? Not only do we want to supply components, we want to be able to action them by turning them on and off. So that leads me, first of all, into the first discussion, uh, which is going to be switches. There are so many switches out there uh, I mean, basically, it can be quite confusing. Like, for example, if you go onto a, a wholesaler's site or a, uh, a vendor's site, you'll see them being referred to um, by uh, probably their type. Um, uh, the most common typing is uh, sort of their pole and their throw. Uh, like, single pole, single throw, double pole, double throw, uh, and basically so many different types that um, uh, really just familiarize yourself with what SPST, DPST actually means. Um, look at the, um, the data sheets, and of course, uh, it's a wealth of information in there. But first of all, let's look at the, the first most simple type of switch. Uh, it's a single pole, single throw. That means that it's a basic on-off switch. It will have two contacts on it and it's simply to make and break the continuity, i.e. it turns the power on and off. Most simple switch you'll come across. The next one um, will be a single pole double throw. You'll recognize this type of switch because it has um, three terminals on the back, um, usually the center being the common. Uh, in one position, the continuity is between uh, the A terminal and the common, and in the other position, continuity is between the B terminal and the common. Uh, can be used as either a simple on-off by connecting the common and one of the terminals, or for directing continuity two different ways, for example, lighting two different LEDs, or sending two different joystick button presses to a controller card. Uh, this type of switch is also available in a center-off variant, um, so uh, it'll be a SPDT center-off. 
may also be referred to as SPDTCO. Okay, um, so uh, microswitches, for example, are usually uh, single pole double terminal. Then going up the ladder, we have a double pole single throw. Uh, this is basically two separate single pole single throw switches in one housing. Uh, this now allows the control of two continuity circuits with one switch. Uh, for example, one side of the switch can turn on and off the voltage to an LED, and the other side can be connected to a joystick controller as a button. So you then get synchronized action with one switch. That's a DPST. The next one, the DPDT. Okay, that's a double pole, double throw switch. Okay, it goes one step further. Uh, this switch is two single pole, double throw switches in one case. Okay, it'll have six terminals on the back. The center ones generally, again, being the commons, but refer to the data sheet. Uh, it can be used for controlling up to four LEDs, or up to four joystick buttons, or even two of each. Uh, these switches are also available in a centre-off variant, double-pole, double-terminal, centre-off. So many switches. Right, okay, momentary switches. Uh, some toggle switches have a momentary action. That is, they do not actually click into a given position. They're, they merely make the connection and then break it when released. Uh, and then, of course, returning to the central-off position. This will normally be defined in the description as on, contained in brackets. For example, uh, a single pole double throw momentary switch would be on, off, on in brackets, or on in brackets, off, on in brackets. So uh, again, just familiarize yourself with the way that people actually um, uh, sort of show you what the switches can do. And again, can't tell you again enough, read the data sheet. Uh, talking about momentary switches, and then you move on to make, uh, push to make. Uh, simple push to make switches, uh, what happens? You push the button and you get continuity across the switch. You release it and the continuity is, is broken. Um, okay, when there's continuity, uh, your current can flow. When you release the button, it cuts it. So uh, you can use it for joystick buttons, um, you can use it for momentarily flashing LEDs, anything along those lines, um, and it can be applied to any function which requires a simple on-off action. The next switch, push to break, the complete opposite to a push to make. In the released position, there is continuity across the switch. When you press the switch, continuity is broken. Ideal for uh, resetting things, um, but I'm sure somebody somewhere will have a use for it. It works completely opposite to the push to make uh, when it's in the rest position. Uh, continuity is on, and in the uh, push position, continuity is broken. Just, uh, um, just play with switches. You know, you, you can do some amazing things with them if you have a great imagination. Right, finally, um, a switch. Rotary switches uh, are, uh, well, we're going to look at this, and 
They're available in a multitude of different pole weigh variations. Um, for example, uh, there's a one pole 12 way, a two pole six way, three pole four way, four pole three way. There are so many variations that allows you to do um, some amazing tricks really with them. Um, the purpose for this type of switch is to allow continuity to be steered over several connections. A good example is a starter switch where the continuity can be set sent to uh, several recipients. And this week we found a new um, use for rotary switches um, by laddering the resistors. But what I'll do is I'll talk about that a little bit later on. Well, Ian, let me now do a quick recap. Single pole, single throw, single pole, double throw, double pole, single throw, double pole, double throw, push to make, push to break, rotary switches, wow. I'll tell you what, there are some weird and wonderful switch types out there. And I can't uh, tell you more, but as soon as you get experienced, go exploring as much as you can. And there's a lot to learn in those. I agree. Um, honestly, there are uh, so many switch types available. Um, we've just talked about the most common types. Um, but I, I would recommend go exploring because you'd be surprised, um, you know, the amount of switch types that are out there. Um, the reason why we talked about the most common ones is because obviously everybody uses them. They're readily available and these are not expensive. Uh, you know, there's some very, very good suppliers out there who can supply you with switches. And, um, you know, as I did say earlier on, please, please read the data sheets because that's what they're there for. They're there to tell you what the switch can do. Um, so... Uh, using different types of switches, you can really expand uh, on, on your circuits and then the sophistication of them. Well, Ian, now you've given us an excellent overview on switches and, and I think most of them would have a basic understanding on how to use them and how to at least turn things on and off. Can we now focus on some components that are especially common components that we are likely to come across? For sure. Right. Okay. The first one I ever learned to use was a diode. The reason being is um, because um, nobody's good at everything and uh, computer technology, remembering that um, when I went to school a computer um, was sort of like uh, a wooden frame <laughs> with lots of balls on it. <laughs> uh, you know, so basically what I needed to do by applying engineering to, to uh, a system uh, the first component I really learned to use was a diode because the diode would allow me to uh, route current wherever I wanted it to go by the action of switches. Um, so we've all heard about diodes, but what exactly are they? Um, to make it easy for you, if you think of a diode as a one-way valve for current flow, Okay, that is your current will flow one way through the diode, but not the other way. Remember that DC current flows from positive to ground. Diodes are therefore pole sensitive. Um, if you look at a circuit symbol for the diode, there's one in the document which accompanies the podcast. The two ends of the diode are labeled A and K. Okay, that stands for anode and cathode. Um, again, looking at the symbol, the current flows from the anode to the cathode. 
if you look at the symbol, um, you will see uh, an arrow and a straight line. So, if you think that the current will flow in the direction of the arrow, but not the other way, okay? Um, basically, the current can flow in the direction of the arrow, but if it tries to come back the other way, it comes up against the brick wall. That's quite a good analogy, I think. Um, so, uh, if you just study the diagram, and then it all falls into place. Um, because diodes are pole sensitive, they're usually marked at the cathode side, um, as shown in the document, uh, usually with a band around the cathode end. This means it becomes very easy to identify the cathode um, because of the banding that's printed or marked on the casing. Um, so, and when using diodes, uh, just remember there'll be a voltage drop across them of about 0.7 volts. So if you connect the anode to 5 volts, you'll have a voltage of 4.3 on the cathode side being delivered to your component. Um, just bear that in mind when driving LEDs because the resistor needed to protect the LED can be of a, a lower value. But we'll talk about that a bit later on. Ian, diode now makes sense. What next? Well, um, uh, moving on, diode, we now move to a light-emitting diode. Okay? LED, light-emitting diode. That's what the LED stands for. Um, as its name suggests, it is indeed a diode that emits light. Being a type of diode, it is again pole sensitive. Uh, it acts exactly the same way as a standard diode, but the current is used to produce light, which it emits. Um, if you look at the, uh, circuit, uh, the symbol for an LED, it's basically identical to a diode, except it shows um, a couple of arrows that is the light that it's emitting. Okay, so uh, you have to correct it the right way around or it's just not going to play ball. Um, it's relatively easy to identify the anode and the cathode on LED. Um, standard type LEDs will have two pins, two legs coming out of them. The longer leg is the anode, the positive side, and the shorter leg is the cathode, the ground. Okay, most mass-produced LEDs will also have a flat on the cathode side of the casing to aid identification. Right, now we know how to hook up an LED, there's considerations to take into account first. Basically, most standard LEDs that you can buy over the counter will have an average forward voltage of 2.2 volts. Um, a lot of this depends basically on what the colour is. But, Connecting an LED to a higher voltage will burn out the LED. Therefore, it's important to reduce the voltage to a level that the LED can be driven at. And we do this by connecting a resistor in series in the positive delivery to the LED. Uh, there's some examples in the podcast document to explain this, okay? So take a look at it. Don't forget to download it so you understand what's, uh, what's actually going on. Um, right, so... Now, if we use a 5-volt supply, we're going to blow the brains out of the LED. So, we connect a resistor in series to protect the LED and ensure it gets the correct amount of current. Um, rule of thumb, that resistor on 5-volt will have a value of 330 ohm. Uh, now, for example, if you have a circuit that includes a diode, 
Because you may want to direct uh, uh, the voltage using a diode, it means you can reduce the value of the resistance needed to protect the LED. Uh, another rule of thumb, if I'm using a diode in the circuit, I can reduce uh, the resistor to 220 ohm. Um, now, why do we put a diode in the circuit, I hear you ask? Well, you may want to light that LED for, from more than one source. Again, there's a, a, an example in the podcast document. Great. Yeah, and this now makes more sense. I didn't know the longer ones are anode and the shorter ones are cathode, and I think it's thrown a lot of light on the voltages. Is there anything else that we would need to know about LEDs? Uh, well, not LEDs. Uh, not all LEDs have an average uh, forward voltage of 2.2 volt. Um, you can actually buy LEDs with a built-in resistor um, that will allow you connect, to connect directly to a higher voltage. You know, for example, 5 volt or 12 volt. I mean, for example, in the UK, uh, Maplin sell these over the counter uh, as 5 volt and 12 volt LEDs. Um, read the data sheets uh, or the information that the vendor gives you just to satisfy yourself exactly what the LED can safely handle. That will then let you work out uh, the value of the resistance that you need to use to protect it. Um, uh, like for example, uh, I, the examples I put in the document are in, uh, intended, again, as I say, a rule of thumb. Uh, but by all means, experiment with resistors if you feel the LED is not bright enough. Um, I, I've now started to use 220 ohm uh, in circuits uh, that you'll see in the document on the left, and as low as 180 ohm in circuits uh, that you see you know, on the right-hand example. Uh, another thing to bear in mind with LEDs is uh, what is called the MCD. Um, uh, what this means, it is a value of the brightness of the, LED, of the LED at a given current. So it follows that the higher the MCD, then the brighter the LED is going to be. Um, an LED with an MCD value of 80 at 10 milliamp is going to be brighter than an LED with an MCD of 32 at 10 milliamp. So um, just remember to look also at the MCD value when you choose it in uh, your LEDs. Uh, Probably the last thing I'm going to say is never connect LEDs up in parallel. Uh, you're going to have problems because basically if you connect an LED up in, uh, LEDs up in parallel, a value LED will light and the higher value probably won't. Um, so always connect multi multiple LEDs in series. Uh, this again, some simple circuit examples in the document to help you get LEDs actually lighting and connected to your controller cards so you can get two things happening with one switch. Throughout uh, the last few minutes when you spoke about LEDs, you also spoke about resistors. Can you tell us a little bit more about resistors? Okay, let's uh, have a quick look at resistors. Well, a resistor, think of it as a current regulator. Uh, resistors restrict the flow of, of electric current. So the greater the resistance, the less current that flows through it. Uh, resistors are not pole sensitive. You can connect them any way around. The, the sole purpose of the resistor is to resist, you know. Um, so uh, resistors can be quite um, sort of, you know, confusing really because um, the value of a resistor is generally color-coded onto the body. Um, okay, so... 
For more information about interpreting codes, do a Google search on sister colour codes. Uh, but generally, for our intents and purposes, uh, your local electronics shop or your online vendor will sell them in packs of a given value. You know, for example, you can go and buy 100, 180 ohm, or 10, 500 ohm, or, or whatever. You know, they're, they're readily available, and generally, you'll find them packaged um, in uh, one value. Um, you know. Uh, rule of thumb, really, again, most simple circuits, simple resistors, 25, uh, 0.25 volt uh, watt will do, um, but some for higher usage, you know, look at 0.5 watt ones as well, just in case you want to try doing something more adventurous, really. Um, so resistors, uh, you know, again, read up a little bit, doesn't do any harm. Absolutely, and you've now given us a wonderful overview of simple switches. We've spoken about components, but where do we go from here? <laughs> right, okay. From experience, once you gain a basic understanding of the simple components, uh, you always want to start looking at expanding what you can do with them. Uh, you want to design bigger and better circuits. Uh, but most of us don't have the ability to make, for example, a printed circuit board. So uh, the next best thing is strip board. Uh, it's also known as Vero board. Uh, I love it. It lets you build your own circuits onto a solid base. Uh, what this board basically has is a series of copper strips running down one side of it to which components can be soldered. Okay? Um, you'll find that the board is punched. Uh, with all holes which run along uh, the center of the tracks. Uh, the holes in the strips are usually 2.54 millimeter or a tenth of an inch shot. Uh, and you'll also find that most common components seem to have a dimension uh, of 2.54 between the pins or a multiple thereof. So you'll find that most common components like relays, for example, um, will fit into um, the uh, tenth of an inch spacing, you know, allows you to fit uh, them nicely onto boards and get your, um, get your components soldered on. Um, most common components will fit straight onto this type of board. Um, you can join the tracks, you can cut the tracks, you can design some very, very, very sophisticated circuits using strip board. Again, uh, I've, um, I've shown a couple of examples of what I do um, in the podcast document. Uh, it's ideal for making things like breakout boards or joystick matrix boards. The document actually shows some matrix boards I made for, for a friend using BU0836 standard board uh, that requires diodes. Um, you know, they're well worth looking at. The second and third images in the document are more complicated circuits, but I showed them to give you an idea of what can be done. Um, initially, I started to design my own uh, switching system uh, for my power source on my overhead uh, before I started to use PICs. And um, it's quite a complicated circuit built onto uh, a strip board. Uh, then finally, I think, um, if I remember, the third um, image on the document uh, is my original APU control board 
which I used using 555 timer chips to light the proper enunciators and then make the APU available after a given time delay. Um, so basically, um, take a look at these. They're in the document. You know, they might inspire you to do something. And finally, uh, another example, we made uh, a circuit for a friend with 555 timer chips so that he could use his gear light control to light the red LEDs when the gear was in transit uh, and then the green LEDs when the gear was down and locked. Um, so, you know, it's as good as your imagination. What do you want to accomplish next? That's really cool, uh, Ian. And at this stage, I would like to re-emphasize to all our listeners that it's important that you download the document uh, because that's going to perfectly supplement this podcast and will probably make um, much more sense to you. Berlian, what you just said, anything we missed out, if I recollect, in the last podcast, we spoke about something called as potentiometers, did we? Uh, potentiometers, yeah, we did. Um, let me think about this now. Uh, it's such a long time ago. <laughs> we can always go back over it. Um, we can just have a quick discussion about uh, potentiometers uh, right here, really. Uh, generally, the two most popular types of potentiometers, also referred to as POTS, um, are the rotary and the slide. Uh, potentiometers are available in a huge range of different values, uh, but for our purpose, usually uh, 10 kilo ohm or 100 kilo ohm values are what we should be using. Um, POTS are also referred to as being either linear or logarithmic. Uh, again, for our purpose, keep it simple. Linear is just what we need. Uh, linear POTS change their value evenly as the shaft is rotated or the slide pot is increased or decreased. Um, so remember, uh, slide, uh, rotary, linear, logarithmic. Um, Keep it simple, let's go with uh, linear at this stage, okay? Um, so, how does a pot work? Okay, if you look at a rotary pot, you'll see it's got three slider uh, pins on it. Uh, inside the pot is a track. It's usually made of carbon or a ceramic, such as ceramic metal mix. Um, the two outer pins on the pot will be joined to either end of the track. The centre pin, which is connected to the shaft and rotates with it, is called the wiper. The wiper moves along the track and in doing so changes the resistance. For most of our purposes, a 5 volt DC and ground supply is connected to the two outer pins and a third wire is connected to the centre pin. Now remembering volts, current, resistance and our friend Mr Ohm, as the wiper moves along the track, resistance changes. That change is reflected and read by the wiper connection, and that's how your joystick controller card or computer knows where the position of the pot is at any given time. Uh, again, there's an, uh, an example in the document. Um, something to know about pots. Uh, always try to use pots of the same value in a project. Use all 10K or all 100k. Um, I mean, that's not set in stone, but it just makes for good practice. Um, okay, you connected your, your pot up and it works back to front. No worries. Simply swap the 5 volt and ground wires and way to go. Another thing as well, uh, pots can also be used as dimmers in small applications. 
Um, a, like, for example, a simple pot could be used as a rheostat. Because of the changing resistance along the track, it then becomes possible to control the current flowing to a device. By simply connecting your 5 volt supply to one of the outer pins of the pot and, and the wiper, you get to control the amount of currents available to your LED, for example. Uh, there's an example in the dock showing this. In the diagram, uh, when the pot's at one end of its travel, 470 ohm resistance is applied, uh, plus the 220 ohm at the resistor, 690 ohm total. The LED will not light. But if you move the wiper to the other extreme, and no resistance is applied across the pot, uh, only the protection resistor is applying control, and the LED will light. Now rotate the pot slowly in the opposite direction and watch what happens. I've used this technique um, uh, for the zone temperature LEDs on my, LED, uh, on my overhead. Uh, works very, very well indeed. Well, Ian, can you now throw some light on laddering resistors? Absolutely, okay. Um, the reason why I've included this in the document is because um, uh, a colleague taught me this uh, quite a few years ago, really. And um, only this week, uh, it's actually come back into um, uh, an application, actually. Um, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful to Mark Deponio for teaching me this. Um, but uh, laddering resistors across a rotary switch, uh, we all know what a potentiometer is, okay? We talked about them just earlier. It's a variable resistance that changes as you rotate a potentiometer. Um, for example, and to make it simple, uh, like a 100K uh, potentiometer changes resistance from zero to 100 kilo ohm over its range. So it follows that a third of the way along the track, its resistance is approximately 33 kilo ohm. At two thirds along the track, it's 66 kilo ohm. Um, are you with me so far? There's an example in the dock to show what I mean. Now, only this week we had a requirement um, for a four position switch uh, to give us accurate um, sort of positioning along an axis. Uh, so we used the rotary switch uh, for four, uh, four positions uh, and we connected each pin together using 33 kilo ohm resistors. Um, uh, there's an example in the document which you'll see four spaces, uh, sorry, four pins, three spaces. So if you divide 100 by three, it's 33.3. So using three 33 kilo ohm resistors over four pins on the rotary gave us 100 kilo ohm resistance. Um, you have to see the diagram. Please download the document so you understand what we mean. Um, but by using a rotary switch and resistors, it then became possible to emulate a potentiometer, only having distinct positions, if you understand. Uh, the reason I included it here is I've been talking to uh, Leo Bodner this week about an idea, and um, uh, the requirement, of course, on my friend's Airbus project uh, required us to do this. So, if you, uh, if you look at the diagram in the document, um, look at the example, this is how it works. Let's assume we're going to use a 100k pot for an axis. It can be anything like flaps, starter switches, 
absolutely anything. That would give us a 100 kilo ohm range over the parts. But by using a rotary and three 33 kilo ohm resistors, the same res end result is achievable. Uh, let's say you have a four position flaps lever. Um, good example, the Cessna 172, um, the PMDG J41. Um, this is an accurate way to ensure you get the up flaps one, flaps two, flaps down situation. Um, and then, of course, uh, you can use F FSUIPC uh, to action functions in the axis assignment menu to assign commands or, or even action one of your own macros. Uh, very, very good idea, uh, laddering resistors. So uh, basically, take a look at it and... Um, you know, we can, uh, I'm sure that, you know, if your imagination is as good as mine, you'll find a use for it. Um, that just about ties up what we want to talk about today. It's been quite a long discussion. So, uh, you know, basically, I hope we've given you something to chew on and hopefully get you thinking about trying to do something with a few components. It's a great feeling when you turn on a switch and something happens. Uh, especially when what you think is going to happen actually does. <laughs> so, once you discover simple electronics, trust me, you'll want to do more. It's a real challenge learning what components do and then applying uh, what you've learned into practice. Um, just for your information, just look up 555 timer chips and what they can do. Very simple, very cheap components. I'll be looking at these in the next episode. Also, have a look at logic chips um, and let your circuits make the decisions for you. And that's going to lead you on to PICs. It's an amazing world, but we all have to start somewhere. Thanks for your time. Um, and thank you for listening. Hope it's been educational and you've enjoyed it. Um, in the there is some links to some very, very, very good sites. Um, there's a link to an image for Stripboard to help you um, plan your circuits. Um, if you want to know more about electronic components, there's a link to one of my favorite sites, the Electronics Club, which really started me off looking at it. Um, so hopefully you've enjoyed it and look forward to next time. Well, I'd just like to echo Ian's views on how important the document is, and it's going to be a perfect supplement to this podcast. And Ian, of course, has put in a lot of effort to bring this out together. It's available for free for download. Make sure you download it and have a look at it. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely confident it's going to be a wonderful resource. Well, Ian, thank you again very much for putting this together. It was a very concise, and you've effectively conveyed basics of electronics, at least a start to basics of electronics to our new builders. I'm sure this is going to be a great resource for them. Thank you very much uh, for your time, Ian. I don't know where you got concise from, but uh, <laughs> um, thank you. If you've enjoyed it very, very much, uh, next time we're going to be looking at some very simple um, circuits using 555 time shift. So, so until next time, have a great, great time. See you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. That was an excellent discussion with Ian. A lot of good information. Ian and Vibao, thank you for that wonderful discussion. That concludes this session of Tips and Discussions on how to plan and build your cockpit, hosted by our very own Vibow. Next session, we'll bring you another informational discussion regarding building your cockpit.
Thanks to all of you, My Cockpit is the largest home cockpit builders community in the world, providing an encyclopedia of cockpit building information. You can access us at www.mycockpit.org. Visit mycockpit.org to access valuable information regarding cockpit building. Each month there are new articles and interviews with fellow builders. Visit our forum and participate in lively how-to topics. It doesn't matter whether you have a single panel or a full-scale cockpit, you'll benefit from much information and by participating at my cockpit. 